You might be involved in the marketplace in a business. You could be playing a game at your table. You could be involved in politics in an election. And whatever your endeavor is, there's usually some kind of strategy that you're pursuing in the hopes that the result you're looking for takes place. Well, this has been a big week, and on that last one related to politics and an election, it's been all over the news and in our lives. We got the opportunity this past week to Wednesday morning quarterback, and Thursday, and Friday, and Saturday, and the, and the list goes on. What, what was the right strategy for this or that party or platform? Did it work out? Was there a, a wrong one, and was it bad? After all, everyone thinks that some strategy, some plan is better than nothing. One of the biggest indictments of a, a politician or of a party is that they lack a platform or a set of policies at all. The old adage goes, it's hard to beat something with nothing. Strategy matters. Intentionality matters. And the passage that we're going to look at today says the same thing, but for something far more important than a business and its plan, a game and its strategy or politics and an election. It has to do with how followers of Jesus live the Christian life and God's design for us. Intentionality and strategic living matters. Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 5. We're returning to Ephesians, the stretch run of our series, Paul's letter to that church. And this morning, we're going to examine a relatively brief passage on how we live with intentionality, how we have the perspective and follow the design that God has. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. We'll give you one uh, for keeps. If you don't own one for a, uh, on loan, if you just forgot yours, it's important that we see the scriptures and allow the, them to speak to us. Next week, we're going to look at a longer passage, three arenas of the Christian life and how we live in the fullness of the spirit. And then on November 27th, uh, a couple weeks from today will be our last time in Ephesians looking at the spiritual armor and the, the battle that we're involved in, not only in the seen world, but particularly the unseen world. I look forward to each of these passages. You know, if we look back at the last several weeks, beginning in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, we see Paul's writing marinated with directives on living the Christian life. And when we look at today, in the coming weeks, we see... Uh, Paul using descriptions of what that looks like. Not that there aren't commands or directives in today's and the coming week's passages, but rather Paul wants to flesh out what does this look like in the arenas of life, in the family, in the church family, in society, in the workplace. The level of practicality and application in these weeks is off the charts. We remember, of course, that Paul didn't originally write this letter to us. He wrote it to the Ephesians. But it is written for us, for all believers and churches who follow and are able to read and hear that because God's word is inspired and authoritative and meant beyond just simply the first recipients who uh, received it. Today we look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 21. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to read that aloud in honor of the word of God. I'll be reading from the New International Version, this short passage with all kinds of import. Verse 15. Be very careful then how you live, Paul writes, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. 
Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of God. Thanks. You may be seated. Thank you for honoring the scriptures in that way. Paul starts with a command here that governs the whole section. He tells believers, be careful how you live. And of course, live is really the word walk. We've seen that all through Ephesians. Paul uses that metaphor more in Ephesians than he does any of his other letters. In fact, we see it in chapter 4, verse 1. We see it in chapter 4, verse 17. We see it in chapter 5, verse 2, chapter 5, verse 8, and now in chapter 5, verse 15. The idea of walking to picture the Christian life. And as we walk in this journey with Jesus, God is shaping and fashioning us so that our speech, so that our thoughts, so that our conduct look more and more like Jesus Christ. How should we walk? We ask very carefully, the scriptures say. The Christian Standard Bible version says it perhaps best. Pay careful attention then how you walk. I've been in the Central African Republic, I think, five times. Uh, two of those times we went up north. Uh, the city or a large village north of the capital city of Bangui is called Bwali. And there's a famous uh, dam there, a waterfall, and uh, a river that flows into it. And across that river, not far from the waterfall, is a rather precarious bridge. And on one occasion, all of us who were along were uh, asked, required, to walk across that bridge. Now, this wasn't a bridge like you and I would know it. This was a walking bridge suspended over a rather rapid river, swaying in various directions. It had thick ropes, not, not out of metal, but ropes from one end to the other. And uh, horizontal wooden planks were our path. And there were gaps between each of the planks. In other words, you had to watch, you had to look at every step you would take. One false move and your leg would slip through between the planks or it would slip out and you'd be grabbing for something or the bridge would sway and you'd grab at anything or anyone so that you stayed on. You had to pay careful attention to how you walked. There were dangers everywhere. And so it is with the Christian life. Paul says here, look, regard, watch. Don't, don't wander aimlessly in life. Don't meander without purpose. Walk with intentionality. Walk strategically. Walk carefully. In fact, in verse 14 there, Paul says, wake up, sleeper. Be sober, be intent. Know where you're going. And then Paul provides three antitheses or contrasts that, that show the two ways in which you could walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, verse 15. Not foolish, but understanding the Lord's will, verse 17. Not drunk, but filled with the Spirit, verse 18. And that will serve as our outline here. You can follow along in your hard copy or follow along at gracepolaris.org program as we journey through these verses. First one, verses 15 and 16, wise living. Walk not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. 
And this theme of wisdom has a long track record in the Bible. We might call wisdom, particularly in places like the Proverbs, as skillful living, living with insight and discernment. Wisdom combines knowledge with experience and humility. In fact, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You might have noticed, though, that wisdom is in short supply in our world. Wisdom is in short supply for our leaders. Wisdom probably would have prevented Vladimir Putin from invading Ukraine. Wisdom would have likely stopped Elon Musk from buying Twitter. Wisdom may have stopped Tom Brady from playing yet again. You get the idea. Wisdom reflects humility and good judgment. I recently came across a very telling summary of our age. We are drowning in information, but starving for wisdom. Isn't that true? Wise people know how to make the best use of resources, people resources, money, time. And Paul highlights particularly the last one here. If we invert or read backwards this verse, Paul says that since the days are evil, therefore you should make the most of every opportunity. And you might think this is uh, overspeak from Paul calling the days evil. After all, aren't we all good progressives thinking that history and human nature are advancing and improving? Well, not if you live very long in life. You realize that human nature is not changing and our world is a mess. It's hard to look at people in our world and think that we're becoming wiser or more discerning. And, and in light of that, Paul says, therefore live making the most of the oppor opportunities. The Latin there is carpe diem, seize the day, seize the opportunities. Actually, the word there is literally redeem them, buy them back. You, you have several ways to approach the opportunities in your life. You can redeem them or you can squander them or waste them. You can take advantage of them or you can let them go. You can become a consumer of opportunities or an investor in opportunities. And Paul tells us, as followers of Jesus Christ, to live strategically in light of the gospel, in light of eternity, especially in our relationships with one another. In fact, Colossians 4, 5, another letter Paul wrote, says it similarly, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders, make the most of every opportunity. Wise living Mark's followers of Jesus, Paul says. Secondly, insightful living. Verse 17, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Now, at one level, you might read that and think unwise living, foolish living, it's all the same thing. Not exactly. Unwise living has this idea of coming to false conclusions after considering the situation. Foolish living is not thinking at all. Foolish living, or the motto for fools, is ready, fire, fire, fire. There's no aim. Life is simply shoot from the hip, respond to your impulses, follow your passions, and do what you want. But Paul writes here, followers of Jesus don't live like this. Followers of Jesus are not meant to be impulsive and unthinking and irrational. We're supposed to be strategic, intentional in how we live. We want to make the most of the limited time and opportunities that we have. 
I remember my grandma saying this on more than one occasion, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. That's it. Believers redeem. They buy back. They take advantage of the opportunities, which means they have intentionality in the way they live, priorities in how they walk. Much of how we live intentionally is by understanding the Lord's will and to live accordingly. And when we hear about the Lord's will, many of us long to know what that means for me and my specific situation. Should I date that guy? Should I go to college and where? Should we get married? What, what kind of career should I pursue? Should I rent or buy a house? Should we have another child? Should we pursue further treatment? And the list goes on. And we're all keen to know what God would have us do in this situation, in this moment, so we can avoid hardship in life, avoid shipwreck. But as John Stott reminds us, we shall not find his particular will in Scripture. To be sure, we shall find general principles in Scripture to guide us, but detailed decisions have to be made after careful thought and prayer and seeking of advice from mature and experienced believers. We should be told this multiple times. If you're looking like, where's Waldo, for a verse to answer each and every one of your personal questions in life, you're probably not going to find it. That's not what the Bible was meant to be. The Lord's will here and in the scriptures has to do with what God has made plain to us through the scriptures. What's that mean, Mike? Well, things like tell the truth, even when it costs you. Work hard, even when no one's looking. Forgive, even when they don't deserve it, and you didn't either. Stay faithful and chaste in relationships, even when temptation lurks. Paul's telling followers of Jesus here that understanding the Lord's will means realizing that God's plan is actually better than yours. Paul's saying, don't follow your heart. Don't chase your dreams. Obey God's design. Trust his plan because that's insightful living. Not that God works in cross purposes with the desires that he gives you, but be careful that you don't assume your desires are right. Wise living, insightful living. Third one, expressive living. Do not get drunk on wine, verse 18, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Paul comes now to the third and final contrast, and he's going to use the next several verses, in fact, the next several sections, to lay out what this means. And it's a vivid contrast because it's no longer theoretical and conceptual, wise, foolish, discerning, but it's very practical. There's a prohibition here, and there's a command. The prohibition's straightforward. Don't get drunk on wine. Wine was... The common alcoholic drink in Ephesus, but Paul's speaking of all kinds of alcohol here. He's saying that believers should not get drunk, not in any place, not on any occasion, not with any substance. Drunkenness is out of place and sinful for every believer, always full stop. And we live in a day and age where everyone wants their freedom and their liberation, but the Bible is clear here. Yes, Jesus Christ has come to set us free, but that freedom is to know and do the Lord's will, not to lose control. And the reason for this prohibition against drunkenness is obvious. When alcohol controls your mind, alcohol controls your body. 
causes you to think things and do things and say things that tap into your sinful nature. Paul writes here, it leads to debauchery. That's our English word that we don't use very much. The Christian Standard Bible says it, well, drunkenness leads to reckless living, excessive indulgence in sensual pleasures. If you need a picture, think of the prodigal younger son in Luke 15 who engaged in wild, reckless living with the inheritance from his father. He squandered it. Debauchery is, is disordered living. It's a lack of self-control. It's a lack of inhibitions on what you say and do. And it leads to sin. The, the debased person starts using his or her body like an animal would, indulging passions, losing sexual restraint, saying things without a filter. At, at its core, you lose control. And Paul had good reasons to use this picture with the believers in Ephesus. One scholar said it like this, the cult of Dionysius, the god of wine, was very prominent. A major feature of this worship was the holding of orgies that included heavy intoxication with wine. The purpose was to cause Dionysius, the goddess of wine, to enter and fill the worshiper's body so that he or she would comply with the deity's will. Dionysius's most active worshipers yielded control of themselves to him and performed sexual acts full of sexual symbolism. Drunkenness was commonly associated with the lack of self-control. Paul knew that and spoke right into their situation. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, Paul writes. And it's almost impossible to overestimate the importance of this directive for living the Christian life. We need to understand what it means so that we can obey it and benefit from it. A couple things as we look further. First, Paul is referring to the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, also called the Spirit of Jesus. And the Spirit is not an it, but a he. The Holy Spirit is divine. He's always existed, which means he was uh, active in the Old Testament era before Christ, before the church age. And back in Old Testament times, the Holy Spirit would periodically come upon people for special empowerment to carry uh, specific directives out from the Lord. Not pervasive, but periodic and circumstantial. That changed at Pentecost. Jesus Christ had lived Shortly before that, on earth, as a man, 33 years, he was the anointed one of God. And in his public ministry, he lived out the fullness of the Spirit. Remember, the Spirit descended upon him like a dove at his baptism. And so Jesus actually gave us the blueprint for what Christ-like living looks like. And Jesus told his first disciples that the Holy Spirit would come and give them insight into truth. Give them comfort in situations. Give them wisdom for living. Give them empowerment for witness. Give them belonging into God's family. We read that especially in John 14 and John 16. In fact, earlier in John, John 7, Jesus predicted the coming of the Spirit. Here's what it says, verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the feast or festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the spirit 
whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So Jesus departs shortly before Pentecost and the spirit arrives and the Holy Spirit is the game changer for Christians. He, he enters with great pomp and circumstance, Acts chapter 2. He comes to be with the disciples and to live in them, as Jesus predicted. And it was unforgettable. It was unforgettable for them. It was unforgettable for those who watched them. And the same spirit who lives in the same Jesus followers is meant to be unforgettable when people watch us. When we look at the filling of the spirit, it's helpful to distinguish that from some other acts or actions of the spirit. Quick theology primer here. We read of the baptism of the spirit. This is where God connects believers to his family, to the people of God. We read of the indwelling of the spirit. God comes and lives in each believer. If you know Christ through repentance and faith, the spirit of God lives in you. We read of the sealing of the spirit. This is as if God brands us and says, that one belongs to me. Don't touch. We read of the gifting of the Spirit, where God enables each of us to be a blessing for the benefit of others. We read of the filling of the Spirit, where God comes through His Spirit to empower us for Christ-like living. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He says, be filled with the Spirit. So we need to know what that means and how that happens and what we should expect. Before we go there, it's vital to say this. If you are a believer, the Holy Spirit lives fully in you. He does not come in installments. A little bit at conversion, a little more later, and in the end, you might get the whole package. As Tony Evans, a pastor in our day, says, the issue we always have to deal with is not how much of the Holy Spirit we have, because we have all of him. The issue is how much he has of us. You don't need more of him. He wants more of you. So the issue is not presence, but control. Let's make a few observations about what Paul writes here. Number one, this is a command, not a suggestion or an idea from Paul. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. No, none of us, if we know Christ, can say, well, that doesn't apply to me. Some other people got him. Some other people want him, but I'm kind of a bystander. No, this is a command for every believer. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Secondly, it's written in the plural to all of us. Yes, it has individual application for you and me, but it's written to all of us. We are meant to embrace and express the fullness of the Spirit as a community of believers. It's not just about me, it's about we. Gordon Fee says, Paul's reflecting on the Christian community these are not words for in the individual believer, but for believers as the people of God in relationship with one another. That's important. It's a command. It's written in the plural. It's written as a passive. What do we mean by that? This. It's not something, the fullness of the Spirit, that you do to or for yourself. It's something done to or for you. Again, Tony Evans helps us. If the Christian life is a supernatural life, then we need supernatural help for it. It's not a matter of doing your best and letting the Holy Spirit make up the difference. No, there is an external agent 
who takes control of your life. And yet that control is welcomed and embraced at the same time by you. You know, you can resist the control of the spirit. The Bible speaks of quenching, uh, of grieving the spirit. God is the one who accomplishes this total infilling, but we are totally involved in the process. Fourth, it's ongoing and it's continuous, or at least it can be. This is present tense. This is meant to describe your life and mine as a believer. And that's important to emphasize because many of the other things, baptism and indwelling and sealing and so forth, happen at a point in time at conversion and are a done deal. But the filling of the Spirit is conditional. It can be fueled or stifled by us. Which means that the filling of the Spirit is not a one-time event, but it's an event or a reality that can occur over and over again in the Christian's life. A couple of illustrations, all of them break down at some level. Think of the Spirit's fullness or empowerment like a light switch. The electrical power is always fully available, but it can be turned on or off by your response. Or even better, it's like a dimmer switch. It can be increased, it can be decreased, it can even be suppressed. But the power to live the Christian life through the presence of the Holy Spirit is always fully there for you. That's good news. That's great news. Let me use a different analogy, one that I have found immensely helpful, maybe because of experience. I've used this before, windsurfing. Maybe you've been on the coast before. Maybe you've been out on a board and tried this. When you are windsurfing, it is a lot of work. You are struggling to get up on the board. You are struggling to hold on to the pole and make sure that there's wind that can, can flow into the, the sail or the, the mast there. You are giving all of your effort, but you supply none of the power. The power is all external. That's like the Christian life. That's what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. You are fully engaged and involved. We'll talk about some of the ways later. And yet all of the power for living comes from God. And he uses our availability to receive his power. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. And that means to be filled with the Spirit means to allow Jesus to have the fullest control in our lives that we're conscious of. And as far as we do that, we will always find new areas of self-centeredness to surrender to the Lord, who is the Spirit and possesses us more and more fully. Let's change analogies here. Let's think of our lives like a house. The, the, the power and the Holy Spirit of the Holy Spirit is meant to have access to every room in the house of our lives, not just the ones that you want him to have permission for or I do. See, the issue is, is of control, that he's welcome wherever he goes. So the meaning of the filling or to be full of the Holy Spirit is someone who is habitually governed by and controlled by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit in them. It's a question of control. So let's return to the contrast there. 
Paul says believers, every last one of us, is controlled by some kind of external agent. But that agent should never be alcohol, Paul says, because of its pervasive power. The agent controlling us should be the Spirit of God. And the results are night and day different, as you well know. John Stott says, whereas excessive alcohol leads to unrestrained and irrational license, some of you think of that earlier in your life, or you've observed it in others, transforming the drunkard into an animal, the fullness of the spirit leads to restrained and rational moral behavior, transforming transforming the Christian into the image of Christ. If alcohol causes us to act in subhuman fashion, The Spirit of God causes us to act and live in superhuman fashion. See, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, we don't lose control. We gain it. And Lord knows that we need people with self-control, not only in our world, but in his family. Now, a couple of questions arise here that we need to examine to understand how we live this out. Number one, what does it look like when I live in the fullness of the Spirit, when I'm filled with the Spirit? And number two, how does that happen? How can I be filled with the Spirit? Well, what does it look like? Paul takes the next several verses here and spells that out in unmistakable detail. We see five descriptions here. Four, because one of them is a package that describe what it means to be filled with the Spirit. This is what it will look like if this is true of you. And each one of these are, to get technical, participles, descriptors of being filled by the Spirit. It will look like an imperative, do this, do that. But it's really, these things are happening as a result of the Spirit's filling. Number one, speaking. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, or songs from the Spirit. Paul begins with our speech. How do we speak to one another? Remember last week, previous weeks? What do you bring up in conversation when you have opportunity to shape it? You may talk about the weather, sports, politics, family, and none of those are inherently wrong. They're part of human interaction. But when you have opportunity to shape that, are you speaking of things from the scriptures, things that are true of our Lord and of our lives? Paul lists here psalms, hymns, and songs. It's hard to distinguish between them. But the point is more basic. Are we speaking biblical truth to one another because we need to hear from one another? We we should never separate the spirit and the word. To obey the word and to surrender to the spirit are virtually identical. That's why here at Grace, our first core value says we are Bible-driven and spirit-led because the scriptures and the spirit always Work in tandem. That's how we speak to each other. Number two, singing. Sing and make music, kind of a package deal, from your heart to the Lord. It's not just our spoken word that matters. It's also our sung word that matters. We're supposed to be singing people. Notice what I said there. Not you can be singing people. We're supposed to be singing people. This is an expectation from the Lord. Now, the wording here is not that we make music in our hearts. Many people who don't like music or don't like singing say, listen, there's a lot of music, but it's all in my heart. 
No, the point here is from our hearts, with our hearts, that whether we're in tune or not, out of our mouths come praise to God and instruction for one another. There's both a horizontal value in singing and a vertical value in singing. Singing has two audiences. Christians sing to one another, reminding each other about God's character and his work in Christ. But we also sing to the Lord as a way to offer praise to him. So when we sing, we instruct one another and we worship God. Singing's a big deal for believers. It's a big deal to us here at Grace. Whether you've ever thought it or heard it, it's not true. Singing is not a warm-up to the sermon. Singing is part and parcel of our worship. It shapes us and it enables us to respond to truth. That's why we seek here at Grace to be excellent in what we do musically. That's why we prepare for gatherings. That's why we uh, choose to be eclectic, realizing that we're a variety of people and backgrounds and ages and styles. That's why we seek to be rigorously biblical in what we sing. That's why, can I meddle? That more of us can be more expressive as we sing. That we would sing as if we really believed what we were singing. I don't want to burst anyone's bubble, but stiffness is not a sign of holiness. And clapping or raising your hands or smiling does not automatically make you a charismatic. But it may make you a whole lot more appealing to observe. We should all sing. Why? Because we, there's a gladness, there's a happiness, there's a gratitude that we want to express. Think about it. At the end of an Ohio State football game, what happens? They all go down in front of the student section and sing. Content people, grateful people sing. One of the most beautiful things that happens here at Grace is even in the way that we're arranged here, you can see other people singing. And behind every face and every voice is a story. And sometimes it's people who are hurting, who have suffered loss, who are going through a trial, who are facing challenging times. And for me to see those people sing and praise God in the middle of that instructs me to stay faithful that God is able. Some of you this morning are those people. You can barely get out the words with the heaviness of life, but you believe them with all your heart. Speaking, singing, thanking here, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. One of my friends is a, a psychology professor, recently became the provost at Grace College and Seminary. And this summer, he was talking to me about the effects of COVID. And he said, COVID exposed us. It exposed that so many of us who claim to follow Jesus Christ don't actually believe in his sovereignty. COVID exposed that many of us don't have gratitude like we should. When we start moaning and groaning in life, it's proof positive that we are not filled with the Spirit because thankfulness, gratitude, is a fruit of the Spirit. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances. And this verse, Ephesians 5.20, says something similar. And we love it except for a couple of words, always and for everything. Why? Because we can't imagine that God is sovereign and he's good and would allow these things to happen in or around our lives. But they do. 
and he is. And gratitude is our response when we can't see through, but we know who sees above. See, we're thankful in times of trial and suffering, not because we enjoy them, not because we understand them, but because we believe in the sovereignty of God and that he's a good father. Can you say that? That God can use suffering to produce character and perseverance and hope. You know, non-Christians notice this too. Earlier this week, I came across uh, a, a study by the Mayo Clinic. Quote, expressing gratitude is associated with a host of mental and physical benefits. Studies have shown that thankfulness can improve sleep, mood, and immunity. Gratitude can also decrease depression, anxiety, difficulties with chronic pain, and risk of disease. This is not a believer. This is the Mayo Clinic. This is not some quack. Again, this is the Mayo Clinic. Our brains are designed to problem solve rather than to appreciate. And often we must override this design to reap the benefits of gratitude. Our lives are full of reasons to be thankful. Sometimes we just need to remember to notice them. So true. Finally, submitting. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We're going to expand greatly on this because Paul does next week. It's a bridge verse, both concluding yet another way that we demonstrate the fullness of the Spirit and then moving into arenas of life in which that glad deference to others shows our connection to Christ in marriage, in family, in work, and beyond. We'll find that those who truly submit to Christ have far less issue learning to submit to one another because this deference fuels this deference as well. Speaking, singing, thanksgiving, submitting, all of these we do and do together. They're meant to be seen. They're meant to be observed in our conversations, in our homes, in our gathered services. They are God's good plan and healthy for us as the Spirit gains control in our lives. Finally, how am I filled with the Spirit? That sounds so good, Mike, and I wish that was true. How can that be my reality? It's not overly complicated, but it is humbling. Let me suggest a handful of ways to fuel the fullness of the Spirit in your life. Number one, ask God for the filling of His Spirit. Our expression of need and desire is the first step to being filled with the Spirit. Number two, confess your sins. Nothing inhibits the guiding of the Spirit like this, the sludge of sin in your life. They don't coexist well at all. Number three, study the Scriptures. Biblical truth provides ingredients for the Spirit to use in our lives to guide us and comfort us and enlighten us and lead us. I like to think of the Bible or the lack of Bible intake to be like a pot of boiling water with no pasta, no ingredient in it. And in many ways, that's true of the person who says, I want to be full of the Spirit. 
I want this boiling pot, but there's nothing to put in there. See, the Spirit of God uses the Scriptures to cook good things in our lives. The Spirit and the Scriptures work together. It's like the person who gets up on that windsurfer and has no sail. Number four, live in community. Quite simply, that means be here, be present, be serving, be in connection. Paul doesn't write this primarily for us individually, but as we live it out in community. Number five, be patient and persistent. Learning to do anything well takes time. And learning to yield to the control of the Spirit is no different. Sixth and last, celebrate progress. Celebrate progress in your life. If you have an IRA, if you have a pension, if you have ever invested any money in the market, you know that the best chart has a certain look. It's up and to the right. And the more it's going up and the further it goes to the right, and the longer those periods are, the better the market. It's a bull market. God wants that in our lives spiritually. That we learn for longer periods of time and more intensity to let the Spirit control our lives so that we might look like Jesus Christ. And the picture is beautiful. In a moment, the choir and orchestra are going to return here to the platform and we're going to express by way of application much of what Paul has told us here. But I want to remind each of us that it is the desire of God that we look like Jesus, that we grow in maturity and unity and wisdom. See, as Tony Evans said, sincerity is not our problem. We want to change. It's the power to change that so many of us lack. And that's why God gives us his spirit so that we might be changed through his power. Sure, we can lose that fullness for a time when we give in to sin, But those who are filled by the Spirit, who are yielding to the Spirit, are picked back up by the Spirit so that we can walk and run again victoriously. And when we do, it is a beautiful picture, not just seeing you run and you run, but all of us run together in the victory that God intends for us as we're filled with the Spirit. As we yield control to Him, He transforms us from the inside out to encourage one another to show off his handiwork and to witness to the watching world. Followers of Jesus are controlled by the Spirit, discerning and demonstrative in how they live. It becomes undeniable that an external agent is controlling your life. And it's beautiful. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your gift of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, to come and make the life of Jesus more and more reality in us. God, we long for that if we know you, and yet so often we recognize our own powerlessness. And so we ask that you would teach us and show us how to keep in step with the Spirit, how to be filled with the Spirit and live so that it's his power at work in our lives to look like Jesus. Thank you that we can do that and we can praise you with one another for your good work in us. May you use us to show off your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.